Well, good morning, and uh, welcome again to In Town, the St. Mary's edition. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, uh, we normally meet in another building, but we're glad that you're here. And if you've been with In Town for a while, doesn't it sort of feel like summer camp, kind of? Or like a different auditorium and different lighting? Thanks to all of you who have uh, just graciously pitched in and helped us with kind of the extra setup and, and different things. And, and Ben Cleek, I don't know if you guys know Ben. I, I'm going to just go ahead and do this. Ben runs our sound and our lighting, and he's done such an amazing job just getting used to a completely new system. So, Ben, thank you very much. Uh, your, your work is very much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, so when I was in college... A couple friends and I decided to start a lawn care business, and it was really one friend of mine's idea, and he was doing it out of spite. He wanted to take this other guy that he didn't like who had a lawn care business and give him some competition, and uh, I needed some money and, you know, whatever, so I, I got on board, and we really didn't know what we were doing. It was sort of a disaster, but we were able to pay our friends a pretty decent hourly wage, and, and we had a lot of good fun, and we tried to focus on kind of just the basic maintenance, you know, mowing lawns and edging and blowing leaves and that sort of thing. But one of the jobs that we kept getting hired to do as the word got out about our little company was, was those backyards that had been let go for far, far too long. And we would just go in and rip and rake and blast everything out to start over. Because that's what you do when things have gotten too far out of control. You just call in a bunch of unskilled college guys with strong backs to tear it all down. But if you actually want something to grow correctly, you don't hire us. You don't hire those people. You hire someone who knows what they're doing because you have to prune it. Someone has to come in and perform a delicate surgery. And it it seems to the rest of us like they're killing the shrub or the tree or whatever it is because they're cutting things off. But they're not actually torturing this plant to death. It's a painful act of love that will lead to the life for that plant. Eugene Peterson tells us that the psalm we're looking at this morning serves as God's pruning shears in our life, which is to say, we might feel a little pinch, but I promise you, it's not to torture us. It's to help us grow correctly. The psalm we're looking at this morning is Psalm 131, and it's been said that it is the shortest psalm to read, but it's the longest psalm to learn. Let me read our our psalm for us and pray, and we'll get started. My heart is not proud. Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we have already reminded ourselves, this is, this is the Sunday that we celebrate your baptism. What a strange mystery that you would humble yourself in such a way, as Brian said, to come as we are, to become one of us, and to take on our sin, our humanity, all of our pain, all of the sorrow that we have created for ourselves, and replace that with hope to give us hope of life in you. I ask this morning that this psalm truly would be pruning shears in your hand, that we would hear your voice speaking to us, that we would not be filled with dread or despair, but that we would be filled with hope and new life. You are causing us to grow, 
into something beautiful, something that we could never have imagined on our own. We ask this in your name. Amen. This psalm begins rather personal and autobiographical, but then quickly becomes a command to the whole community to join in. And it's important to note right off the bat that the psalmist is not trumpeting his own humility. He's not standing in a room looking at a mirror shouting through the whole house, Hey, everyone, come see how humble I am. Rather, the psalmist is shining a light for us on the pathway of faith. And he's alerting us to what is on either side of this pathway. On one side of the pathway of faith lies arrogant ambition, and on the other side lies infantile insecurity. We'll take a look at each in turn. We'll begin with arrogant ambition. Our culture has moved pride and blind ambition, not simply out of the vice category, but actually into the prized virtue category. The folk stories that capture our attention now center around characters that work hard and build something huge and incredible out of nothing, and they never stop. Many of you know that I enjoy kind of weird, obscure documentaries, and it was honestly hard for me to pick one out as, as sort of an analogy for this point, because really there are so many stories in our culture that, that tell this sort of idea of, of blind ambition. But one that I watched recently that really caught my attention is called The Queen of Versailles, and it follows the Siegel family from the height of their wealth in 2008 to their contraction through the financial crisis that came sh- shortly thereafter. David Siegel made his money by building one of the largest, most lavish timeshare companies in America. And so the film opens with kind of a background of how they met him and his wife and how many kids they have and and what they're up to. And really, the film started before the, the financial mess of 2008. And so the filmmakers were really just trying to get a picture of sort of American opulence. And so they're, they're interviewing uh, Mrs. Uh, Siegel, and she's talking to the camera there, and, and she's telling them about this new house that they're building, which is based mostly on a replica of the Palace of Versailles. And they didn't realize it at the time, but what they were doing was starting to build the largest house in America. And she says to the camera crew that they're doing it because their current house, which was something like 30,000 square feet, 30,000 square feet, was not big enough. They needed a little bit more space. And she said that she really hopes her husband can finish building their new 90,000-square-foot palace because why? He really deserves it. He's worked hard all his life, and he really deserves it. Well, the film quickly becomes about something else because as the financial collapse a few years ago began to pull back easy credit, their entire business model contracted. And so David Siegel just looks exhausted by the end of the film, and he's just working tirelessly to find money to inject into his company and to pay his bills. And the thing that struck me the most was that this billionaire had no savings. He paid cash for his house and then took out a loan on it so that he could invest that money in his company to make more and more money. He didn't have any assets They were starting to tell their kids, guess what? You're going to have to go to college and figure out what you want to do with your life because there's nothing for you. It was just expand and advance, and he had nothing to show for it. You can watch the documentary for yourself. The seagulls are doing fine. I think they've they've climbed back out and have finished the 90,000-square-foot mansion. But lest you think that I'm just holding up David Siegel as a whipping boy for us to kind of point our finger at and turn our nose up at, consider how many other types of people fall into the same sort of trap. Ball players, 
even bicyclists in the ambition of being the best in their field take performance-enhancing drugs. Models, in, in attempting to make some sort of lasting mark in their industry, will take diet pills and develop eating disorders. But really, the difference between people like us and people like the seagulls is really just one of difference of degree and perhaps of direction. Even here among us, how many of us as parents or spouses, in an attempt to give our family a a better life than we had, will work extra hours at the office or, or take on credit card debt to shower our kids with Christmas presents? We all have this sense that if we can just do a little bit more, get a little bit more, have a little bit more, that things will be okay. And it's really misplaced ambition. We don't have time this morning to, to go into how rightful aspiration should look. That's, that's another message for another day. But what we can say this morning is that misplaced ambition, the thing that the psalmist tells us he is now avoiding, is one of the marks of the entire human story. If you're familiar with the, with the Christian story, then you know that Christian tradition tells us that Lucifer was one of the most beautiful angelic beings ever to be created, but he stopped aspiring to be what he was created to be and instead formed an ambition to be better than God. And as a result, he was cast out of God's presence to roam the earth, filled with hate for God and his people. And so then, when Satan invades the Garden of Eden, what does he tempt Eve with? Ambition. Misplaced ambition. He tells her that she could be like God. And it is this very thing that pulls our entire world apart. Our ambition to do things our way to be our own gods, to decide our own purpose and create our own goals. We do it with our careers, we do it with our families, our friendships, and we do it with our religion. We want to be spiritual, but we want orthodoxy on our own terms. Misplaced ambition is near the heart of the human condition. It's been said before that we're idol factories, just constantly churning out new things to worship. We have to keep building bigger and better idols. Why? Because they're all too small. We weren't made to worship something so small. And in fact, we're a lot like drug addicts. One of the reasons, if you, if you ever have, have talked to drug addicts or talked to people that do counseling for chemical addicts, you'll, you'll realize that one of the reasons that drug addicts are addicted to drugs is because they're trying to get back to that first high. They have never been able to get as high as they were that first time. And they keep having this elusive idea that they'll somehow be able to get as high as they were that first time. Those of us that don't have chemical addictions really aren't any different. The approval of our friends in high school, good grades in college, a bonus at a new job, a higher position in management, a faster car, a bigger house, a more fulfilling sex life, the perfect kids. As soon as one high fails and wears off, we either turn towards some sort of suicidal depression or we move right on to the next ambition. We don't even think about why we're not being fulfilled. And it's like trying to grab onto water. The harder you clamp down, the more it slips out of your grasp. And we have become like one of those debris-filled backyards that I used to work in. Our attempt at unchecked growth has left us anemic, sickly, and dying. The reason that we do all of these things is because we really want, deep down, to be made whole. But our attempt for wholeness when we try to make wholeness for ourselves is that we end up running roughshod over people and things, consuming everything in our path, hoping to be satisfied. And what the gospel reveals to us is that that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not the way that it has to be. And as we allow ourselves to wander further into gospel reality, 
we'll realize that as, as we start to take on this new identity, it's not so much that we grasp down on that. We're not grasping some new sort of success. Rather, we find ourselves being grasped. And as such, we're able to let go. As Brian has said a few different times, don't just do something, stand there. That's part of the gospel reality. And it's what this psalm is trying to cut us off from. It's trying to cut us off from believing that our ambition to fix ourselves will ever work. It prunes us down so that we can grow correctly. But on the other side of the pathway of faith, on the other side from this sort of unchecked ambition is infantile insecurity. I'm sure that many of you probably remember uh, earlier from this year, or last year rather, Time Magazine's provocative cover of a mother breastfeeding her kid as he stands on a step stool. You guys remember that? So I'm just going to take five minutes really quick to give you just a rough sketch on what's wrong with your parenting model, okay? Just kidding. I, I really, uh, I'm going to be busy after the service, so I can't talk about the pros and cons of attachment parenting, but Brian is available. He'd love <laughs> to talk with you about that for hours, actually. He brought a sack lunch. All right. It really doesn't matter where you come down on, on any sort of parenting discussion, okay? One of the things that, that came out, other than just great sales for Time magazine, is, was a discussion, and, and it, it really kind of reveals something that's almost self-evident about children. And that is that at some point, and we can argue about when, but at some point, children get weaned. It's not always a happy, easy process, but the one thing that, you, that the child actually has to learn is how to be comforted by the mother, the very person that is denying the child the comfort that they thought they wanted to begin with. And this is how the psalmist would have us be on the pathway of faith, a child content in his mother's arms, no longer crying out for immediate satisfaction. At some point, if our faith matures, we stop coming to God because of what we can get from him, and we come to him because of who he is. And this even includes, at some level, our need to experience God. Very often, early in our Christian life or at different points throughout, we will have these phenomenal spiritual experiences. And if we turn that into the norm that we just expect God to do that for us all the time, we'll constantly be disappointed. And what the psalmist wants us to do is to be like a child who has been weaned from the need to have that immediate fulfillment and instead be comforted by the very one who's denying them what they want. And it's important to note that many of us probably turned to God out of selfish motives to begin with. It was probably self-preservation. Maybe we heard a Helen Brimfire-style sermon, and so we were like, well, i got to get out of that. And like they say, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? The foxholes of our own life could have caused us to pray a prayer of expediency. God, get me out of this, and I'll serve you forever. Conversions of expediency are still conversions. And faith can be born in these moments as much as any others. But the, the psalm is now trying to prune out from us our selfish absorption, our desire for immediate satisfaction, for, the, for our own salvation to be about us, for the gifts of God to be our primary focus rather than God himself. It's okay to start as a baby, but we can't stay there. But our infantile insecurity goes beyond just crying out for God when we need him. We're only loving his gifts. It extends to our doubts as well. And this is where I, I find it very interesting that the two sides of this pathway that the psalmist says that, that he avoids, that he wants us to avoid, are sort of like two sides of the same coin. Because if we allow our faith 
to remain infantile. We will, we will cut God down into digestible chunks that we can manage. We'll dilute him with flour and water to keep our tongues from burning. Cutting God down to the size of our doubts is simultaneously infantile and arrogant. Jamie Smith is a Christian philosopher, and he discusses this idea when he marks the difference between skeptics and doubters. Skeptics, he says, want the faith to be cut down to the size of their doubt, to conform to their suspicions. Doubt is taken to be sufficient warrant for cutting a scandalizing God down to the size of our believing. For the skeptic, if I can't believe it, it can't be true. If orthodoxy is unbelievable, then let's come up with a rendition we can believe in. But, he says, God is not subject to my doubts. Rather, all the scandalizing, unbelievable aspects of an inscrutable God are the target of my doubts. But the doubter would never dream that this is occasion for revising the faith, cutting it down to the measure of what I can live with. It's not a matter of coming up with a gospel I can live with. It's a matter of learning to live with all the scandal of the gospel, and that can take a lifetime. It's been said before that the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. And friends, oftentimes faith requires a question that we cannot answer. And many of us here have remained infantile in our demand for easy answers, and we bristle when the doubters in our midst might ask questions that we tend to find difficult. And so we'll end up just regurgitating milky answers where solid food is required. This is where it's, it's like one coin with two sides because many of the rest of us have jumped right from infancy into arrogance. We cut God down to fit our fears and doubts, and then when God isn't big enough to assuage us when real things happen, we strike it on our own and leave the faith behind. In the contemplation quotes, I included a passage from Eugene Peterson mostly because it's easier for someone else to do name-calling than for me to do name-calling, because I don't, I don't want to say that we're whining babies, but he says it. So let me just read it for you again. He says, We are always, it seems, reeling from one side of the road to the other as we travel in the way of faith. At one turning of the road, we are presented with awesome problems and terrifying emergencies. But we rise to the challenge, take things into our own hands to become masters of the situation, telling God, Thank you, but get lost. We'll take care of this one ourselves. At the next turning, we are overwhelmed and run in a panic to some kind of infantile religion that will solve all our problems for us, freeing us of the burden of thinking and the difficulty of choosing. We are alternately rebellious runaways and whining babies. We didn't get this included in the bulletin, but the heading of this psalm that's actually part of the text is that this is a song of ascents. It's a song that the people of Israel would sing together as they were walking a pilgrimage path. It's a pilgrimage psalm. And it's interesting to think of it in those terms because what it's not is it's not a pioneer psalm. And it's not a psalm for those who stay at home. Pioneers strike out on their own. They find their own path and they make their own way. Babies sit at home and demand easy, familiar terrain. But pilgrims... Pilgrims follow the footsteps of thousands who have gone before them through dark valleys of doubt, over mountain peaks of elation, and across long, dry deserts. And this is a song for pilgrims. And if we're to be pilgrims, then we won't be arrogant enough to strike out on our own, and we won't be childish enough to demand that this be easy and to our liking all the time. 
The psalmist calls on the entire community to embody this pilgrimage, to put their hope in the Lord now and forever. And this is what we're called to do as in town, as a community of God's people in our particular time and place. We are called to put our hope in the Lord now and forever. We're called to leave behind our infantile need for easy answers and our arrogant assumptions that we're always right. We're called to be pilgrims on the pathway of faith, cutting through beauty and badlands, and we're called to do it as one baptized body. Humility is a hard thing to learn, but it's really just another word for trust. It's a posture of humble faith where we're childish enough to be led but mature enough to relinquish the need to know why we're taking this route every time things become uncomfortable. We're afforded this faith, this trust, this sort of humility in the gospel because it's there that we have a God who travels the pathway of sorrow and poverty and rejection and death on our behalf and then beckons us into the new life of his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to the table that uh, speaks to us of your love, would we do so as one unified body? Would we go out of this place together as pilgrims, not pioneering our own way, not allowing ourselves the arrogance of, of forging a new path apart from you? And would you keep us from being too infantile in our faith, but would you allow us to have a mature faith that looks to you in hope, even when you are denying us the answers to some of our most difficult questions. I ask that as we come to this table and feed on Jesus, that we would be fed with hope and a desire to know him more. We ask this in his name. Amen.